0: So, what's up Betamaxers? Welcome to episode 58 of uh, Celluloid Fever Dreams. As always, I'm your host, the late, the great, the overweight, Wyndham Jennings. We're going all the way back to 1969 for the Paramount Pictures release, The Assassination Bureau, also known as The Assassination Bureau Limited, starring Oliver Reed and... Diana Rigg, and co-starring Telly Savalas. Uh, we're back into films with really good taglines on them. Uh, this, one's, this one's probably one of my favorites uh, out of the films we've done so far. It's uh, Zeppelins, Bombs, Bordellos, Burials. You name it, we have it. Uh, as always, we start off with our two-second synopsis. Uh, murder for higher Things Happen. All right, a much longer synopsis. Uh, In the early 1900s in Britain, Sonia Winter is trying to break into the all-male field of newspaper journalism. She has uncovered the existence of an organized guild of assassins known as the Assassination Bureau Limited, who are responsible for a series of high-profile public murders. She convinces newspaper publisher Lord Bostwick to give her a chance, she's going to expose the League, and he gets exclusive publishing rights to her story. Lord Bostwick agrees, and Miss Winter decides that the best way to get the Guild, get the League's uh, attention is to take out a hit on somebody. So they pick her up, bring her to their headquarters, and introduce her to their leader, one Ivan Dragomilov. He explains they're not just any group of assassins. They don't kill anyone. You have to provide uh, a reason. You know, It has to be corrupt politicians or uh, somebody who's performing immoral acts or uh, gotten away with a a heinous crime and the law can't touch them. To which Miss Winter explains that she has somebody. Uh, They're a murderer. Uh, They're very proud of what they do. In fact, they accept money for doing it. And she proceeds to take out a contract on Mr. uh, Dragomilov himself. Uh, Instead of rejecting the contract, uh, Dragomilov actually considers uh, what she has said and gladly accepts it, saying that the League has kind of lost its moral way in recent years, and he accepts the challenge. If they can kill him, then, of course, the League will take an entirely different direction. But if they can't, well, then he'll get to steer steer the uh, League back to uh, what his father originally envisioned. Uh, In fact, in order to get the rest of the League uh, on board with it, he offers a 10,000 pound reward to the member who manages to take him out. And uh, what follows is a chase across Europe with uh, Dragomilov trying to stay one step ahead of not only the League, but Miss Winter as he tries to take out the corrupt members of his own organization before they can finish him off. Uh, yeah, I gotta say before we go any further, uh, you know, the sixties and seventies, I've already said it's probably my favorite era of film. Um, you know, and, and these kind of films this sort of, you know, this, uh, black comedy with, um, you know, just some witty lines to it and just really beautiful production values. Uh, you know, things like this, you know, like this kind of comedy is, uh, just hits me you know, right in the sweet spot. Um. You know, I'll admit, some of it is a little corny. Uh, you know, some of the uh, coincidences that allow uh, Dragomil off to escape or to, you know, get one up on his enemies, uh, you know, it is a little goofy. It is a little contrived. Um, it borders sometimes on, like, a Bugs Bunny or a Looney Tunes cartoon. Uh, but, yeah, these are also the films that I just absolutely, you know, this, this era of films and these kind of films, I just absolutely love them always have since I first started seeing them as a kid. Uh, so let's get a little bit into the film and the people responsible for it. The movie is actually based on an unfinished novel by Jack London. Uh, it was finished in the 60s by Robert L. Fish, who also uh, had the pen name Robert L. Pike. Jack London, of course, remembered for the novels The Call of the Wild, White Fang, uh, and The Seawolf. London actually bought the idea for the book off of Sinclair Lewis, an author most notably remembered for the novel Elmer Gantry. Unfortunately, London could never come up with an ending that satisfied him, and upon his death in 1916, this novel remained unfinished. In the late 50s, Robert L. Fish, also known as Robert L. Pike, who wrote books such as The Fugitive, Pursuit, and Mute Witness which was later adapted into the film Bullet, starring Steve McQueen, uh, finished the book based on notes left by London and an outline provided by Charmian London, who was Jack London's widow, before her death in 1955. Uh, United Artists actually bought the rights to the book in 1966, and they were hoping to cast Burt Lancaster in the lead. Uh, Unfortunately, Burt Lancaster pulled out, and so the rights reverted to Paramount. Uh, This is the penultimate film by Basil Dearden. He would only go on to make one more film before his tragic death in 1971, and that was the Roger Moore starring The Man Who Haunted Himself. Uh, I have not seen The Man Who Haunted Himself, but um, I have listened to the podcast Second Features. They did an episode talking about the film. Uh, They also did a more recent episode uh, talking about The Curse of the Werewolf, which was a, a film, Hammer film, one of my favorite werewolf films, starring Oliver Reed, who is also in this film was Ivan Dragomilov, uh, and they're worth checking out if you want to learn a little bit more about either one of those films, more than I'm going to go into uh, on this particular episode. Some of the other films that Dearden directed in his career, which started all the way back in the 30s, include Under Suspicion, Dead of Night, The Blue Lamp, the Mindbenders, and Only When I LARF. And uh, that's not a mispronunciation, that's the way it's spelled, L-A-R-F. Uh, in fact, Only When I LARF came out the same year as The Assassination Bureau. Uh, in fact, The Assassination Bureau and Only When I LARF share a few stylistic choices. Uh, now, the, the main theme of both the films, namely the younger generation clashing against the older generation that uh, they see as corrupt and uh, lazy with power and money, and morally gray protagonists. Uh, Those aren't really unique to these two films. They were both established themes uh, you can find in a bunch of other 60s films. But uh, beyond that, they also share very similar openings. Both films open with old black and white movie footage uh, in the middle of the screen in a square ratio to sort of help set up the uh, timeline and the uh, mood of the film. The script was written by Michael Reff. Reff is also the writer responsible for Davy, the 1960 film Man in the Moon, and Masquerade. Uh, He also had done several films with Dearden. The two of them together made The Smallest Show on Earth, Sapphire, The League of Gentlemen, Victim, uh, and The Man Who Haunted Himself. Uh, Ref was also a producer on the film, and he did uh, design some of the, a lot of the sets used in the film, drawing on his time working in the art department at Ealing Studios. Co-writer on the script was Wolf Mankowitz, which kind of sounds like a James Bond villain. Uh, he also wrote Casino Royale, not the uh, James Bond version, but the um, comedy from I think 1967. He also wrote uh, the 1971 version of Black Beauty, and he did a script treatment on the James Bond film Dr. No. Uh, yeah, like I said, the film is set in the early 1900s, I, I think either 1906 or 1910, thereabouts. Um, and for some reason in the 60s, there's a, 60s, there seems to be a lot of films uh, set in this era. You know, We've got this, you know, this film, the Assassination Bureau, uh, Mary Poppins. Um, we got, you know, the, what was it the Daring Young Men and their Jalopies? Uh, I think that's the name of it. Uh, but anyway, the, this era in history was in the 60s kind of being reevaluated. Um, the First World War was being reevaluated and it was seen kind of in some circles as a failure, as just something that existed only to make capitalists and you know, arms manufacturers rich. And in, in fact, that actually becomes a plot point in the film. The people that work, with, work within the assassination bureau that want to do away with the moral stance that they have are trying to trigger a war across Europe so that they can make money off of it. And not just by performing assassinations. Just about all of them, besides being assassins, have uh, fingers in the pies of businesses that will benefit from wartime. Uh, yeah, and Dragomilov wants to prevent a war from happening, not really for altruistic reasons. I mean, you know, he, he is someone who kills for money, and that's basically what it boils down to, is he's explaining to Miss Winter in one scene that who's going to spend the money for a you know, quality assassin when you've got hundreds of men out, thousands of men out in the fields killing each other for just pennies a day. In fact, one of the things I liked about this film is that no one, not even Miss Winter, with her moral crusade to put an end to the Assassin's Guild, uh, is entirely pure or good. There's a quick little scene where she tries to take the moral high ground with Dragomilov pointing out that she doesn't believe in killing for any reason, and he immediately snaps back with, but you hired an Assassin's Guild to come after me. In fact, the Assassin's Guild almost gets their war, as Archduke Ferdinand, of Ruthenia, not of uh, Austria-Hungary, is blown up by a bomb, triggering a peace conference as all of the major powers in Europe convene in order to try to stave off a war from this incident. So the film tries to walk a line balancing out humor, uh, especially dark humor, along with a little bit of action and intrigue. And I gotta say, the film is not afraid to shift tone quickly and dramatically, even in a single scene. One of the assassins confronts uh, Dragomilov on a train and is kind of played a little suave and laid, almost a James Bond moment from Oliver Reed as he asks for time to finish his drink and to finish his cigar before he's assassinated. And the guy explains that, you know, he can finish the drink, but the cigar will take too long. Somebody might walk in on him. And... Yeah, before that, you've got the inter the exchange between him and Miss Winter, which is you know kind of a little bit of a romantic comedy style scene, and then you got this scene where it just shifts into like I said almost like a thriller, uh, and then Dragomilov sets the guy on fire, uh, and then it goes back to you know, Dragomilov and Winter in the next scene, just sort of having you know witty banter with each other, and the action sequences in it. I mean, you're not going to get like a Mission Impossible or, um, you know, like a Fast and the Furious or even John Wick-style action sequences. But, you know, especially at the end when they're trying to stop the Assassin's Guild from destroying at the peace conference, you get sword fights and gunplay and somebody escaping from a zeppelin by cutting one of the hydrogen bags loose and using it to slow their descent uh, as, they, you know, as they jump from the flaming wreckage of the gondola like I said, it, the film is a mishmash of genres, including romantic comedy. I mean, if you walk into this film not fully expecting Miss Winter and uh, Mr. Dragomilov to fall in love by the end of it, then you probably haven't never seen a movie like this before. I, I would have been more surprised if they hadn't fallen in love by the end of the film. And I gotta say, uh, Oliver Reed and Diana Rigg had a great chemistry together on screen. It's not hard to believe that the two characters would uh, you know, eventually find each other attractive and start to have feelings for one another. You know, the way they spar with each other, uh, the looks they give each other. At one point, Miss Winter thinks an assassin is coming after Dragomilov and actually saves his life, despite you know an hour earlier in the film being the one responsible for the assassins coming after him and it's especially, I don't know, to me, a little mind-blowing that they have such excellent chemistry and work so well together, because from what I was able to find out in my research, the two of them got on like cats and dogs uh, on the set. I couldn't find any specific instances, but everything that I did come across, like I said, just seemed to indicate that neither one of them cared for the other. In fact, the only only quote I could find about it is from Oliver Reed's daughter, who, when she was asked about uh, his relationship with Diana Rigg, responded, In the words of my father, she's a strong woman. Uh, Make of that what you will, I I honestly don't know. So, let's talk a little bit about the cast at this point. Sonia Winter is played by, of course, Diana Rigg. You either know Diana Rigg from the 1960s, spy series, The Avengers, where she played Emma Peel alongside Patrick Mcnee's John Steed, or you know her from, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this because I hadn't seen the show in years, olena Tyrell from Game of Thrones. Uh, Some other roles you may recognize her from is a small role in the James Bond film On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which also had Telly Savalas in it and was George Lazenby's only Appearance as James Bond in the series. She also had roles in Doctor Who. Uh, the Great Muppet Caper. And one of the best television shows ever made. The Detectorists. I'm, I'm telling you right now. If you can find this show. Uh, I think we found it on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on there or not. Uh, you might want to look it up. Definitely one of the funniest shows I've ever seen in my life. She only has a small role in it. She plays the mother-in-law of one of the characters, and her actual daughter is also on the show. But the show I think only lasted three seasons It's a British show. I want to say it's around 20 episodes, and it revolves around two members of a metal detector club in rural England, and them trying to find something you know of value or historical significance in the fields around their town, and it just revolves around their lives and the lives of their friends. And it is honestly one, I'll say, I'll say it again, it is honestly one of the funniest shows I've ever seen in my life. And yet at the same time, it's got a lot of heart to it. I, I really don't want to go into a lot of the story. I mean, you might be sitting there thinking, that doesn't sound like it would be all that good. But just trust me, if you come across it, watch it. Ivan Dragomilov, head of the Assassination Bureau, is played by Oliver Reed who was also in the film, Oliver. Some of his other work includes, as I've mentioned before, the Hammer film, The Curse of the Werewolf. Again, one of my favorite uh, werewolf movies of all time. Probably my favorite Hammer film. The Who's Tommy, The Brood, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype, Condor Man, Gore, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen*, and Gladiator. Miss Winter's Boss, the publisher of the newspaper she's trying to get the story for, Lord Bostwick, is played by Telly Savalas. As I already mentioned, uh, Savalas appeared with Diana Rigg in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which come out this same year, I believe, 1969. You, uh, well, probably if you're like me, your first encounter with Telly Savalas was probably reruns of Kojak, where he played the titular detective. Or, if you're a movie buff, you may have caught him in such films as Kelly's Heroes, The Dirty Dozen, the 1962 version of Cape Fear, Horror Express, or Capricorn One. Uh, And I'm just going to go a little off topic here and say that between the three of them, this is probably one of the best looking casts I've ever seen in a film. Uh, And I mean that seriously. I mean, I'm a married man, but I'm not sure I'd have said no to any of them. Some other actors you may recognize in the film include General Von Pink, who's played by, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Kurt Jurgen's. Now, he was a German actor. He didn't have a whole lot of English roles. But some of the things you can catch him in include And God Created Woman, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, another James Bond connection, and The Vault of Horror. Uh, interestingly enough, they show General Von Pink, uh, when they introduce him, fencing with one of his subordinates. And he places two, you, know, you know, for the 60s anyway, nasty bleeding wounds on either one of the man's cheeks. And of course, General himself has a facial scar. This was actually something rooted in history. Um, it, it seems like I'd come across it before and just sort of forgotten about it. But it's called Menser. And what it is, is it's a style of fencing in which the fencers display valor through endurance of an opponent's blows. In other words, it's not you sitting there you know, fencing and, and blocking the blows or turning the blows. It is very much they're going to hit you. You're going to be wounded, and if you flinch or cry out, then it counts against you. Now, in, in what I was able to uncover, you are allowed goggles to protect the eyes, there are, um, you know, besides the goggles, there's a piece that can go over your nose to protect that so you don't lose your nose. But no, when you see old pictures, especially in like World War II, if you see German soldiers, officers especially, with these nasty facial scars, that's generally where it comes from. This was like a university thing, a fraternity thing, you know, clubs for uh, you know, well-to-do men or for college students who you know, were upper class. And it was the worse the scar looked, the higher the prestige you got. And also it was believed that the worse the scar looked, the more women were going to be attracted to you. Disfiguring yourself in a duel was actually seen as a badge of honor. Now, during World War II, the, uh, the mincer duels were outlawed, but they still continued in private. They just weren't publicly acknowledged though from what I can understand, it pretty much died out almost completely after World War II. From what I saw, it was like very small groups that were still carrying it on. but but like I said, some of the research into it was just insane. You know the uh, scars, well the the wounds were pretty much left open. They were barely stitched. Sometimes they were stuffed with horsehair or other stuff to ensure that they would scar better or bigger, but there was, you know, tales in some of the the research I come across, some of the articles I read, that, you know, you get this huge wound up the side of your face, and, you know, they had doctors standing by to stitch them together, but these guys would only take two, two stitches or three stitches for a wound that, you know, ran their entire jawline, because the more stitches you got, the less honorable you were. Uh, in, in fact, that was one of the ways that they, in, in some of the clubs, they would declare the loser is who wound up with the most stitches at the end of the fight. Yeah, I, I just found that crazy that they would work something like that, which, I mean, is period accurate, but at the same time, they would work something like that in into this film. A couple of other actors you may recognize, Madame Otero, who helps run a brothel that Dragomilov and Miss Winter find themselves in at one point is played by Beryl Reed, British actress who you can see in such films as The Killing of Sister George, The Beast in the Cellar, the Vincent Price starring Dr. Fibes Rises Again. That's two films that i got to go back and watch. Really weird, but at the same time really good. Uh, she also was in the 1979 version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. In uh, Doctor Who, in the early 80s, she appeared alongside the Fifth Doctor, and the film Yellowbeard. Uh, the last actor you might recognize is Cesare Spado. He's the Italian member of the Assassination Bureau, and he's played by Clive Revel. Clive's appeared in such films as Bunny Lake is Missing, Modesty Blaze, based on the uh, comic of the same name, The Legend of Hell House, The Little Prince, Clueless, Robin Hood men in tights, and who is the original voice of the Emperor in The Empire Strikes Back before the special edition, you know, changed those scenes. He also had a role in the Oh My God, this is an actual film. I didn't dream it. Matilda, about a boxing kangaroo, in which they didn't actually get a kangaroo. They just put a guy in a kangaroo suit. And the dead eyes of that suit will tear your very soul out. Uh, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty and answer the most important question of all. Was it entertaining? Yeah, uh, I will say yes, but to me this is an uh, all-in film. You know, like I've, I've mentioned before, uh, not everyone's going to love it. Uh, I do. I mean, like I said, this this era of film, uh, you know, this kind of humor, it just is right in my wheelhouse, is what I like. It kind of reminds me of uh, the Mel Brooks films. You know, the combination of goofiness and, and dark humor and some witty jokes and some sight gags. You know, like I said, or the Looney Tunes cartoons. So, it's not for everyone, but for me it's a really enjoyable film, and it's one I'll recommend. And the thing is, it could work even as a more serious story, and I kind of like that. I like that, the you know, the plot... Even though they did go a little, little you know, in the comedy direction with it, it could have been done really seriously and well. You know, it could have been almost a John Wick type type of story, as is though. Like I love it. I, I will say, I kind of wish they'd gone a little more into the fact that none of them are really good people. You know, like that. Like there's the one line where Dragomilov calls out Winter's hypocrisy, like. You know, you say you're a pacifist and you don't want uh, you know anyone to die under any circumstances, but you hired people to kill me, you know, or or maybe may drag me off just a little bit more. I don't know. I guess cynical, you know, because he's a moral killer. He's only stopping the war so he can still make money off of killing people in order to keep war from bringing that breaking out, which really is an interesting concept. I think, in pop culture, the the moral assassin, I know it's something that's come up before in in other films and uh, books, video games, etc. You know, Discworld probably has my favorite uh, Assassin's Guild in any form of entertainment. Uh, In fact, the the Discworld Assassin's Guild kind of does remind me of Dragomilov and his idea for the Assassination League. You know, the whole idea of life is very precious. That's why we charge so much in order to take one. You know, but it is weird in a way when you think about it, all the films, uh, books, TV shows, etc., that revolve around the, I ain't going to say the word hero, protagonist being uh, an assassin, you know, a, a killer for money. And we just roll with it. But Assassination Bureau, at the time of recording this, uh, I watched it on Tubi, Before we go, though, I want to, I've already given a shout out to Second Features, a couple other podcasts I want you guys to go check out. One of them is Saturday Morning Podcast, their episode on the Dukes of Hazzard cartoon. Yes, there was a Dukes of Hazzard cartoon. Yes, I remember it. And yes, at some point, I apparently contributed something to this episode. I'm I'm sorry if you guys listen to this. I've just been really busy and hadn't had a... The the episode's downloaded. I'm going to listen to it just at the time of me recording this. I haven't yet. Sorry. But yeah, Saturday Morning Podcast, the episode on the Dukes. I contributed to the episode. And also, your next favorite movie, which, you know, check them out anyway. They're kind of like me. They talk about movies that, uh, well, I think it's their title, your next favorite movie. You know more movies that you should watch yourself and be aware of, but their episode on Swamp Thing, I contributed to that. I they asked people for their thoughts on the film, and I'm actually old enough to remember when the movie came into came out in theaters. Uh, Now I didn't see it in theaters; I rented it from a video store. Uh, And you got to remember, this is back in the day. You didn't really have a lot of comic book movies you know Swamp Thing is what the early 80s like 80 81 something like that and if you look back at big budget comic book movies before that you've got basically Superman maybe Flash or I can remember Flash Gordon come out before Swamp Thing or not but i mean yeah there's not really a whole lot of comic book movies you know in theaters and for them to do a character like Swamp Thing who even today, isn't a well-known, well-known, out, I think, outside of comic book circles. Maybe a little. I know they did the TV show in the 90s, and uh, if you play video games, he's in, in Injustice. But, you know, he's not what I would even today consider a big character. But, yeah, you know, if you got want to find something new to listen to, and you like Saturday morning cartoons and weird movies, and obviously you like at least one of them because you're here, Uh, Go check out Saturday Morning Podcast and your next favorite movie. Pretty sure they're available everywhere where you can download me from as well. So what's going to be our next film? Well, we're staying in the 60s, and we're going to 1966 with the Rock Hudson thriller Seconds. Uh, But until next time, uh, if you'd like to hear more from me, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, C Fever Dreams. You can follow me at TikTok at celluloid fever dreams. trying to do more of them. Still not really comfortable filming myself, but working on it. want to take a moment and thank you for letting me be a little part of your day and hope that your day and the rest of your week treats you well. And Remember, there's a lot of things you can be in life. Kind is one of the better ones, especially to yourself. But until next time, I'm Wyndham Jennings. This has been Celluloid Fever Dreams, and Go out and find something fun to do or watch. Your choice. Till next time, everybody. Good night.